grateful to be with you and thank God for the privilege to be together once again here at Spring Lake and the opportunity today to not only enjoy the time of ministry that's been mine to give, but also to enjoy the fellowship and the good food as has been mentioned. Good to see our brother Joel Pancratz and his family, uh, Lisa and some of the children. Thankful for your presence here. Good to see our brother Glenn Berry once again. Appreciate his presence as well. And I'm glad my wife could join me today, as she's been able to do. There must be something special about Spring Lake because she makes it a point to be here when I'm here. So it makes me want to be here more often. It's always good to have her with me when we're traveling, and I'm thankful that she could come and enjoy the weekend. The Lord has been kind to us in it, and we're thankful. I want to invite you this evening to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, please. The Gospel according to Matthew Chapter 13, and I'd like to read in your hearing some familiar words that begin that chapter. We have the parable of the sower as it's called by our Lord, sometimes called by others the parable of the soils. I'd like for us to look together at the words that we find that speak of that in uh, the giving of that parable, but also our Lord's interpretation of it, and in between some things that He points out that are very significant relative to an overall understanding, an overview of the Scriptures and the uh, time element that marks the Scriptures. So let's look together at this parable this evening, the Lord willing, again beginning at verse 1 of Matthew 13, and we'll read together through to verse 23. The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto Him, So that he went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth, and forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, But to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing, see not. And hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear, For verily I say unto you that many prophets 
and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear and have not heard them. Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom, and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one, and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed in the stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon or immediately with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he not rooted himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word, and the care of this world. And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word, and understandeth it, which also beareth fruit, and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. We trust that our God will add his blessing, his snap and seal to his written and read word, his inspired and preserved word. May we just together pause before him again in prayer. Father, we bow before You in the name, the name of Him who teaches us these things which we've read this evening. The name of Him, Father, whom You have exalted as Lord at Your right hand. The name of Him whose blood cleanses from sin. Father, we ask of You tonight that the Spirit whom He promised You would send would be our guide and instructor as we look at Thy Word of Truth this evening. Father, we pray that You would honor Your Son in our lives through the time we spend looking into the mirror of Your Word of Truth. We grant that You would enable us, Father, to see those things which our Savior spoke here, that they might benefit us this evening. Father, give us, we pray, a hearing ear, a seeing eye, an understanding heart. By Your grace, in Christ's name, Amen. As you look at these words of Matthew 13 tonight, uh, even as I read the words, figure these words are words that deserve a series, not a sermon, because of the depth of them and the breadth that marks them. And yet I'd like for us to look at them by way of survey, survey this evening. By way of a title, I'd like to give you this, Gospel Realities, Kingdom Realities. In Matthew 13, there's been somewhat of a development of what our Lord has been doing in His teaching and healing ministry. And as He's been engaged in healing, engaged in the ministry of the Word, preaching and teaching the Word, in doing that, there's been a response that has marked the people of Israel. That response has not been a good one in chapter 12. The uh, Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders of the people, they respond to the words of our Lord and the works of our Lord and say, This man casteth out devils by Beelzebub. They look at the works of our Lord Jesus Christ. Works that, as we mentioned this morning in relation to uh, other matters, works that clearly identified Him as Messiah. Works that were recognized by those who knew in the light of the Old Testament Messiah's coming. They recognized that those works pointed to Him. As the Lord Jesus appeared as God's Son on the scene, come to save. As indeed God Himself come to save in the line of Isaiah 35 and the words there that speak of Him. He was doing those miracles that pointed to the reality of the kingdom present in the King. 
He, the King, who had drawn near and began to proclaim the good news, repent ye for the kingdom of heaven's at hand. As he, as, as he appeared and in Him the kingdom was present, there was in, in fact a, a rejection of the King at the hands of Israel. That wasn't something that the Scriptures did not speak of. Isaiah and Isaiah 53.1 He spoke clearly. Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? The anticipation of Messiah's, Messiah's rejection was clearly prophesied. Indeed, it was in line with the history of Israel as a people apart from the grace of God. And the words of our Lord that are quoted in Isaiah chapter 6 within these words we've read, that indicates the heart of the people and the need and demand for the sovereign grace of God to open any man's eyes and any man's ears to rightly see and hear the truth of the Gospel. And those are some things that stand out, I think, evidently in these words of Matthew 13. I want us to consider them a little more, if we could, in terms of what our Savior says here. By way of uh, giving the outline, allow me to do that, and then we'll flesh it out a little more. Hopefully throw some meat and sinew and other things on the bones. But uh, I give you this, we have a description, a distinction, and a definition. That description is given in those words that mark the parable itself in verses 1 through 9. But then in the words that come between the parable and its interpretation in verses 10 through 17, we have a distinction. And that's a distinction I think on several levels that we need to consider and then finally we have a definition as our Lord gives to us in verses 18 through 23, the interpretation of the parable. And He unpacks for His disciples to whom He is primarily speaking, He unpacks for them the meaning of what He has given in that simple story that we commonly call the parable of the sower. Now let's think about the first part of it in a description. Here the Lord Jesus as He goes out of the house, as described back in the words of chapter 12, he, he, he is, we read He sat by the sea. Let's just pick up and read again the words. Verse 1, The same day went Jesus out of the house and sat by the seaside, and great multitudes were gathered together unto Him, so that He went into a ship and sat, and the whole multitude stood on the shore. And he spake many things unto them in parables, saying, Behold, a sower went forth to sow. And when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth. And forthwith they sprung up, because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some an hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Here we have simply put a description. The Lord Jesus presents a parable, and then Doctor, uh, excuse me, Matthew rather, excuse me, gives the idea of speaking in parables, plural, in verse thirteen or verse three, because of the fact that we have a number of those that mark this whole chapter. And in those parables, the Lord Jesus is giving to us a description of kingdom realities and of gospel realities, but He's doing so in such a way as that, as many have described a parable, we have 
an earth, uh, earthly story with a heavenly meaning. I like that idea because it, it really gives us something. I like to think of it as a window though. When we have truth, sometimes the truth, uh, especially if you're a little thick up here like I am, sometimes the truth doesn't stand out as readily and apparently. And so the Lord Jesus gives a window by which that truth can be the better appreciated. Now, that has a negative side too because sometimes the window isn't looked at rightly. It wasn't looked through rightly. It's like that proverb that says, as a parable in the mouth of fools, so the legs of the lame are not equal. In other words, a parable is given to misunderstanding, especially if you lack an understanding heart. It's given to misunderstanding, especially if you don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. And in that sense, the parable becomes not a help to understanding, but rather it becomes, because of the lack of understanding overall, it becomes no help at all. That's something that I believe is brought out by our Lord in His words that form that intersection of our look tonight in the message. But that description is given. It's one that uh, in that form of a window provides a beautiful picture and in it we see the reaction to the seed that our Lord Jesus speaks of that He will interpret for us later. He speaks of a sower going forth to sow. It would have been a common scene in, in Israel in that day. A common scene in Judea. Whichever part of the Roman province you would have lived in within that area of the Middle East. It would have been a scene that would have been so commonplace that it would have immediately registered with every one of the heroes of our Lord there in the, in the area of Galilee where He's ministering. And as He speaks of that sower broadcasting the seed, He speaks of four areas where that seed falls. He speaks, first of all, of wayside soil. Soil that has become basically a footpath. And on that footpath, there's really a hardness that marks it so that the seed never falls into the ground. And instead, the birds come and have a feast. Uh, we stayed last night with Junior and Ruby Basham. And as we were with them, uh, one of the stories I remember Brother Junior telling in his Sunday school teaching when I was at Gospel Baptist Church, he'd gone up to Ruffin to sell some grain. Uh, he had his truck loaded with the grain. And on the open bed of that truck, no, no tarp over it, he said that he hit a bump at one point on the road to Ruffin near Reedsville. And ski, seed scattered out of the truck onto the ground, and as it hit the road, he saw birds flock to have a feast. They had a buffet. Well, it would have been very similar with regard to this wayside soil. It would have been the kind of seed that would have, or the, the kind of soil that would have been really impenetrable for the seed. Now, that's the first soil our Lord mentions in the description. But then he goes on to speak as well of some soil that was on stony places. It was in some measure arable. It was in some measure soil that could be plowed, but at the same time, it wasn't productive because of the fact that it was marked by stony ground that, that did not allow depth for the seed. And that stony soil would have been something that his hearers as well would have been familiar with. Because uh, ground that may have even good topsoil, but only a little bit of topsoil 
and then a stone layer underneath is not going to be productive. So it seemed that, again, they would have realized. Then he mentions that that next soil in this description. This time, it's a soil that is marked by a thorny character. And when the seed is sown, it sprouts. It gives appearance maybe of being good grain, but then the thorns choke it out. But then finally, there's that final seed that is mentioned. And that is good soil. And this soil is soil that is productive and fruitful and on it there's an increase. A hundredfold, that's pretty good yield I would say. Sixtyfold, thirtyfold. And all of this though there is fruitfulness. And that becomes the key. That becomes the mark that points out what the seed is intended for in the purpose of God. As our Savior speaks of that, He'll give us a definition of it in his interpretation later. But in between that, there's an interaction that takes place, a conversation between his disciples and himself that is really very instructive for us. I believe it gives in some measure a key to the Gospel of Matthew, a key to the New Testament, a key to the whole of redemptive history. As God has had his purposes maintained and made known by his Son, we could, let's follow the conversation. As we see here, what I would present to you is a distinction. We read in verse 10, And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? He answered and said unto them, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath, to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance. But whosoever hath not, from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing, see not. And hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross. It's become hardened, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which you see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. Well, we didn't give you much of our outline for the first part, but in the description we would see something of the manner of the kingdom. And as as we saw the reaction to the seed. So here, in a distinction, we see the mystery of the kingdom and we see the revelation of the secret. And I want us to think about what I believe could be described as a threefold distinction within the words of our Lord here. The first distinction relates to the kingdom of heaven itself. Our Lord speaks in verse 11 of the mysteries of the kingdom. He tells His disciples as they ask concerning His speaking in parables, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Now I remind you of what a mystery is in the light of the New Testament. We think about a mystery a bit differently. Uh, There are mystery writers and there are mystery shows and there are those things that involve mystery and we think in terms of a riddle to be solved. 
But in the New Testament, the word mysterion, the, the word that speaks of mystery, and is transliterated really from Greek into English as the word mystery, that word speaks in the light of Scripture of something up till now unrevealed, but now made known. And so we have the mystery of the church that Paul speaks of in Ephesians 2 and 3. We have the mystery of Israel's blindness that is found in Romans 11. Other mysteries that we find within the Pauline epistle. The mystery of the seven churches that John gives in Revelation 1. But in the words of our Lord in Matthew 13, we have the mysteries of the kingdom. Things that had not been disclosed until our Lord appeared and now in Matthew 13 He makes them known. And as He makes them known, it seems that in the character of what He unfolds here in Matthew 13, there is indeed a distinction from what was anticipated by the prophets. And I think in part that's why our Lord mentions in verse 17 the prophets and righteous men who desired to see the things which His disciples were seeing, to hear the things which they were hearing. And when we think of that, I'd ask you just to notice in Matthew 13, beyond what we've read, notice a few verses please. Notice verse 24. Another parable put He forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. And then drop down to verse 31. Another parable put He forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Drop down to verse 33. Another parable spake He unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. And then if you'll drop down to verse 44, please. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure hidden in a field. Drop down to verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. Throughout these parables of Matthew 13, our Lord is giving a definition of God's kingdom but it's one that seems very distinct from the kingdom as the prophets looked ahead to it. It's distinct. Now it's not that 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 they saw was wrong. But it's, as it were, our Lord is speaking of something unrevealed to them, but now He is making known as the King of the kingdom. Let me ask you to go back to Daniel 7 for just a moment and maybe that will help us to appreciate the distinction that I would want to bring out. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel has a vision here in which he sees the kingdoms of men. And as they're presented to him, he sees as well a kingdom which the Son of Man receives. And in Daniel chapter 7, if you would please, notice the the words of the uh, of the uh, prophet in verse 11. Well, let's just go back to verse 9 in order to appreciate the flow. Daniel is seeing four beasts in verses 1 through 8. And seeing those beasts, uh, they represent the kingdoms of men. And in verse 9, Daniel writes, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. 
A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set, and the books were opened. I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words which the horn spake, I beheld even till the beast was slain, and his body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. And there was given Him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Against the backdrop of the vision that Daniel has seen in chapter 7, in those words 1 through 8, verses 1 through 8, he has seen four beasts that represent the kingdom of the world. Now, those first three beasts, as is said about them in verse 12, when their kingdom ended as such, they continued in their existence. Basically, their kingdom was, as it were, uh, succeeded, but also somewhat enveloped by the kingdom that followed it. Uh, when Babylon gave way to Persia, the Persian kingdom basically enveloped the Babylonian kingdom. When the Greek kingdom enveloped the Persian kingdom and so on. But in the case of that final kingdom... Daniel writes concerning it in verse 11 that that beast was slain and given to the burning flame and basically summarily destroyed. It came to an absolute end and then the Son of Man reigned in an everlasting kingdom. So basically what you have is the absolute destruction of the kingdoms of men followed by the kingdom of God ruled over by the Son of Man. And we look forward to that day. We pray for it as we say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We, we anticipate it. In Daniel 2 it seems the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and its interpretation much the same. As, as a rock falls from heaven uncut by human hands, smashes the feet of that statue that Nebuchadnezzar has envisioned in his dream. And then that rock grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. And really the two chapters are parallel in that regard. But when we get to Matthew 13, the Lord Jesus is speaking of a distinction with regard to the kingdom here. Instead of that kingdom coming in great force and great power and subduing all the earth, we have a picture of a message that is scattered like a seed. And is it scattered? It's received differently. Sometimes it's received indifferently. And, and, and that becomes really the paradigm for this present age, as it were, between the two comings. From the Lord Jesus when He ascended in glory to this present time and beyond, the kingdom is seen in a very different way as our Lord presents it in what He reveals in the mysteries of the kingdom. One day, Men will indeed bow. One day, every nation, tribe, tongue, and people will serve Him. His fiat will be the law throughout the whole of His kingdom. Now that's true that His fiat is the law right now, but it's a law that is spurned. It's a law that's rejected. It's a law that men take 
may I say it this way willy-nilly as they please it seems and so our Lord is giving to his disciples a picture of the kingdom that was one unrevealed but now made known and that revelation is something that you and I do well to remember living in this present age still caught between the ages as it were between the inauguration of what He did in His first coming and the ultimate consummation of what He'll complete when He comes again. And so, these words, they provide for us a distinction. Uh, If I may, allow me to ask you as we go back to Matthew 13 to stop by Matthew chapter 3, please. In Matthew chapter 3, we read the preaching of John the Baptist. And if you would, note with me the words of John in verses 10 and following of Matthew 3. John announced, of course, the good news, Repent ye, verse 2, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as he fleshed that out for his hearers, he made this statement in verse 10. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with with unquenchable fire. As John announces the coming of Messiah Jesus, as he speaks of the revelation, as he calls on Israel to repent at the coming, because the kingdom is drawn near, as he does that, he announces those days in which the axe was being laid to the root of the tree, judgment falling. And as he does that, he speaks of Messiah. As he baptizes water, he speaks of Messiah as being the one who will baptize with the Holy Ghost and fire. Now, occasionally, especially if you pass through the countryside, in certain places, say in rural North Carolina or maybe rural South Carolina, you might be you might see a sign that says on it, outside a church building, Fire Baptized Holy Church. But I want you to know this baptism is with fire is not one that I want. The baptisms are really two baptisms. The baptism with the Spirit, that's the baptism which He's going to pour out upon the wheat that He gathers into His granary. But the baptism with fire is, as the words of John point out clearly in the next verse, that's a baptism of judgment. Notice the words of of, of, of John there concerning the Savior in verse 12, whose fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That last phrase, that's the baptism of fire. He's going to burn the chaff up with unquenchable fire. That's the fire of judgment and the fire of wrath. And John's anticipation was as Messiah appeared, that would be the response that people would meet with at His hands. But John, the last of the law and prophets, as Matthew 11 tells us, John didn't see that period that our Lord announces to His disciples. And so in Matthew 11, when John hasn't been gathered into the granary, and when Herod hasn't been burnt with unquenchable fire, 
The historian Josephus tells us that John was imprisoned at Machaerus, a prison there near, near the Dead Sea where Herod's palace was nearby. And I'm sure that John on evenings could hear the revelry of Herod's partying. And John sent to the Lord Jesus two of His disciples to say, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? Why was that? Because I believe John, in line with those prophets, expected that summary destruction of the wicked when the Messiah appeared. The Lord Jesus, of course, reassured him, I am the coming one. He did those miracles. Luke 7 records, Matthew 11 records them for us in his words to John through his two disciples. The deaf hear, the lame walk, the blind see, the dead are raised to life. Those miracles that the prophet had said, Isaiah told, this would happen as we saw this morning when Isaiah spoke of how when God came to save His people, these works would happen. And I'm sure John was reassured. The Lord Jesus had what Vance Habner called that forgotten beatitude. Blessed is he, whosoever is not offended in me. But John, again, the anticipation from that prophetic viewpoint was of the kingdom coming immediately. And yet our Lord announces a distinction with regard to the character of the kingdom as He introduces it now in Matthew 13. It's a kingdom in which to use the illustration of Matthew 13 that we've looked at. It's it's a kingdom in which the seed is met with varying responses. What is that seed? We'll see it. It's the word of the kingdom. The message of the kingdom. It's like a man who plants good seed but alongside of that what's happening? The enemy's planting bad seed. We have the children of God the children of the wicked one. And that's been the course of this age since our Savior returned to heaven. And so, we have a distinction relative to the kingdom and what our Lord reveals. In this present age, I think we can say safely, Christ reigns over His people in righteousness. The kingdom is manifest. It's manifest in His churches. It's manifest in believers who know Him and love Him But it's not the kingdom that was anticipated in the prophetic Scriptures. It's not that kingdom in which the the final victory of the Son of Man over the evil one has occurred. Now I do want to tell you that the victory did occur at the cross though. I like the way Don Carson speaks of it. The principial victory. You see the Lord Jesus at the cross did what Genesis 3.15 said He would do. He crushed the head of the serpent. But, as I found when you crush heads of serpents, they don't always die. We were talking about that this afternoon over in the, uh, in the fellowship time. Uh, we killed a copperhead a few days ago. Well, it's been a little longer now. A few weeks back, a few months maybe. Uh, Samuel, my son, saw the baby and he dispatched it. But then a bigger one appeared. I guess it was Mama or Daddy. And he dispatched it. Well, they were moving toward the chicken coop. I guess they were looking for an egg buffet, you know. But as they made their way, he found them. And where he killed them was right next to the little fire pit where I burned burnable trash. It was a cool night that night. And when I went out the next morning to burn the trash, 
though the head had been severed from that snake, pardon me ladies, though the head had been severed from that snake, when that fire began to burn, the muscle and nerve activity was still in that snake's body began to move. And it, I was telling Earl, and I think uh, you and I were talking about it this afternoon, and that, that snake became so act, active that it actually rolled into the fire. And then it really moved. What's my point? Well, my point is, the head-banging work of the seed of the woman took place at the cross. But right now, in this interlude in the mysteries of the kingdom, we have the serpent's activity continuing but one day that serpent is going to be fully and finally judged. We look forward to that day. But we have, if you will, this interim period of kingdom rule in a way that the prophets did not foresee. The Word going forth and the Lord working. There's a second distinction we need to call your attention in order to appreciate how He works. Going back to the words of Matthew 13 in the what our Savior says in verse 11 is He answers their question, why are you speaking in parables? Verse 11, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundance, but whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away even that he hath. Our Lord makes it clear to His disciples in response to their question, to you it has been given to know these mysteries. God by His grace is determined that He will reveal to you the truth. But as He speaks of, in the case of our Lord in His ministry, as He speaks of the majority of Israel, they were under the same blindness that had marked Israel in Isaiah's day. It had marked them in Moses' day. When God said about them, their spot is not the spot of His children. In other words, God gave them over to what they in their own hearts wanted. One thing I've learned as a believer is I don't want what I want. Because what I want is not what God wants so often. And I want to, as one of His, try to want what He wants. For God to give men over their own will is the worst death sentence any person could face. And yet, the good news of the Gospel tells us that not all are given over to what they want. I'm glad for God's grace that is able to change us, that is able to reveal to us His mercy, His Word, His truth. And that's what our Lord Jesus tells the disciples by God's distinguishing grace they had become the recipients of. If you'll notice, as he continues, he quotes the words of Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, in verse 13 he introduces them. Therefore speak out of them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they, they, do they understand. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, it's become hardened. 
and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. That's what God had been pleased to do with regard to Israel. And over history, there had been only that remnant within Israel that had come to know Him. I like the way Brother Albine, a dear brother from Fayetteville, North Carolina, put it. God's always been in the remnant business. I know there are a lot of ladies who like remnant shops. They love to go by and buy fabric and go to those remnant shops. Well, God's always been in the remnant business. Throughout history, it may get thin. It may get down to eight people in one generation. But those people are going to come out the other side of the flood because of God's grace. And by the way, that's why Noah was saved. As Genesis 6, 8 says so clearly, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. I like the story that's told a preacher friend, black preacher friend from Greensboro, who has been very kind to me. I'm wearing one of his suits. Doesn't it look good on me? That was free, no extra charge. He was telling me about a preacher who was preaching up in Chicago on those words of Genesis 6, 8. And uh, he said that, that as he took those words, the Bible tells us here Noah found grace. He said, now they tell us that the Hebrew language reads different from our language. Our language reads left to right, but, but Hebrew reads right to left. He said, so if we want to understand this phrase, Noah found grace, maybe we should read it right to left. Grace found Noah. And that's what Noah found grace means. It's, it's a Hebrew idiom that doesn't mean Noah was out saying, here grace, here grace, I found it. No, no. It means that Noah became a recipient of grace because God purposed to show grace to Noah. And that, brothers and sisters, is what our Lord is speaking of within Israel. There had always been a remnant, but the mass of the people, they said no to the message. And brothers and sisters, if God gives His yes to our no, we're in trouble. The only thing that will be mercy to us is if God in grace changes our no so that we say yea and amen to the Gospel. And God alone is able to do that. It's a distinction which He alone can accomplish. That's why Paul asks the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.7 Who maketh thee to differ from another? What dost thou have that thou hast not received? And if thou receivest it, why dost thou glory as though thou received it not? Brothers and sisters, our Lord makes it clear if you'll notice in His words of verse 16. I won't ask you to go back to Isaiah 6 at this point, but those are the words that are quoted in the commissioning of Isaiah. His calling as a prophet in that chapter. But notice the words of verse 16. Our Lord, as He says in contrast to the mass of Israel that was blinded and hardened because they, they, were, they were irresolutely unbelieving. The Lord Jesus says, verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Now that blessing is in fact what God conferred in grace. As the Proverbs ask, the seeing eye and the hearing ear hath not the Lord made them both. Who gave to us a seeing ear? Who gave to us a seeing eye, excuse me, a hearing ear? It was the living God. 
And our Savior speaks of God's grace revealed in these disciples as He is involved in His ministry gathering out a remnant from Israel. Gathering out a people who will go on to serve Him and to love Him. But even within those who know God's grace, there's a distinction that we see in verse 17. For our Savior says, For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see and have not seen them, and to hear those things which you hear and have not heard them. In other words, brothers and sisters, for us who are living this side of the cross, God's distinction is seen and that you and I have more light and more truth and more revelation that those who live the other side of the cross had. And because of that, there are things that we understand that they didn't see. And God has distinguished us with greater blessing. And that's something that prophets, wise men, righteous people wanted to see what we are seeing. They desired to see it. But our eyes were blessed. Now that doesn't mean they weren't blessed. God was gracious to them. He showed them truth. They knew Him. But He's been pleased to give, as it were, more light, more truth to us. And in that we see as well the distinguishing character of God's grace. As we live this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection, this side of the ascension of our Lord. Well, that said, let's go on please quickly to a definition here. And here we see the message of the kingdom and the response of the soils. In verse 18, our Lord says, Hear ye therefore the parable of the sower. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which receives seed by the wayside. In the case of this wayside here, our Lord speaks of the presence and activity of the evil one in, as it were, stealing the seed because of the hardness of the heart of the hearer. And the words of our Lord that speak of the wicked one here, they remind me of the truth that Paul gives voice to in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You remember what Paul says in verses 3 and 4 of that chapter? But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world, a reference to the evil one, the wicked one here, the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glory, the gospel of Christ, should shine unto them. Whenever the word is preached, the evil one is present. Why? He wants to steal the seed. That gives to us an indication of how you and I ought to value the word of God. Because the evil one, misery loves company. And the evil one who desires to have as many of Adam's race with him and with those demons or those ones who followed him in his rebellion, he wants to see sinners damned. And what's his most effective way of doing that? Robbing us of the Word of God. And I remind you of what he said in the beginning when he subtly tempted Eve. Yea, hath God said. He hates the Word of God. He despises it. I believe you and I ought to love what He hates. Amen. We ought to love the Word of God. We ought to thank God for... Think about it, brothers and sisters. 
the treasure we have in God's inspired, preserved Word of truth. That's ours. We ought to value it. The enemy wants to steal it. But not only that, the Lord Jesus speaks in verse 20, but he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that heareth the word, and anon that is immediately with joy receiveth it. It appears that there's been a reception, apparently within the mind, within uh, the, 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 the soul of the individual, there's been a work, but not a heart work. Not, not, a, not a genuine reception, but, but an apparent reception. For he doesn't have root in himself. Verse 21 tells us, Yet hath he not root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. In other words, the evidence of a genuine work of God is not a profession. The, genuine, the evidence of a genuine work of God is fruit that endures. That's what our Savior will show us in that final soil. I understand in churches that are more emotional than a lot of our churches are. Uh, They used to say, I don't care how high you jump when you shout, just as long as you walk straight when you hit the ground. Well, in effect, our Lord is pointing the reality out here. There are some people who have anon, it seems apparently and immediately with joy received the word. And yet, there was no genuine reception because there was no root in the life of that word. It had not been planted deep in the soil of the heart by the grace of God. Verse 22, our Savior speaks further by way of interpreting the definition He gives to the uh, soils. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that careth that heareth the word, excuse me, and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and he becometh unfruitful. In contrast to the to trials that seem to cause the, the, the second soil to to uh, become infertile. In this case, it's it's things that mark the character of the age. The, the, the attractions and desires for the things of the world that, that seems to seduce and in that character lead to infertility with regard to the soil. Brothers and sisters, that's a reality. George Herbert, the uh, English literati, said, the world is too much lately with us. I think for every one of us we could probably identify in our lives where the world makes its influence known. It insinuates itself in our lives and robs us of spiritual blessing. That's what we see in the case of that fourth seed, the the seed among the thorns. But then verse 23 gives us that final ground, that final soil. But he that receives seed into the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth it which also beareth fruit and bringeth forth some an hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Now as we relate this final soil to what our Savior said by way of the distinction, He speaks of those that hear the Word and understand it. And they receive it. I'd like for you to consider that over against the verse from the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The Apostle says, 1 Corinthians 2.14 
but the natural man. That's the man in Adam. The, mo- the woman, the boy, the girl in Adam. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, for they are spiritually discerned. In other words, by nature, no son or daughter of Adam is receptive to God's Word. If I receive it, what had to happen? May we go back to Noah found grace? <laughs> Read it right to left. Grace found Noah. We have to say what the hymn writer wrote in the light of God's Word that I quoted from 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Not have I gotten, but what I received. Grace hath bestowed it. Now the hymn writer wrote, since I have believed, but I'd like to put ere I believed. Because grace gives to us faith and repentance. Grace gives to us understanding. The seeing eye, the hearing ear with regard to truth. God did that. And that, brothers and sisters, is what our Lord underscores and highlights for His disciples to whom He reveals these things, these mysteries of the kingdoms, of the kingdom, these gospel realities, these kingdom realities. And as He does that, for each one of us who know Him, may our hearts say, Thank you, Lord. But if tonight there's one here who doesn't know Him, may I say to you, the greatest need incumbent on your life is to seek the Lord while He may be found. To call upon Him while He's near. As He's sent His Word your way in mercy. As He's brought you to, to hear His Word, then respond to that. Treasure it. Think on it. Ask the Lord to do what He alone can do in helping you to prize that Word, to value it, and love the One to whom that Word points, even our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the sum and substance of Holy Scripture. He's the One. And His Word leads us to treasure Him. May we then treasure it. Thank God for His Word this evening. Thank God for His truth Thank God for His Spirit who opens our minds and opens our hearts to those truths. Let's pray. Father, we ask You to bless Your Word now. By Your Spirit, through Your Word, speak to us, Lord. I pray, Father, grant me to treasure Your Word more. Lord Jesus, to love Thy words that are pure words, that are true words, to love them more. Spirit of God, birth that within us in a greater way. To the glory of thy name, triune God, we pray in Jesus' name.